Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you're visiting our church this morning as well, welcome. It really is great to see you. This morning's study is the second in our new series entitled Big Questions. And we are going to address what we regard as the big questions of life and of faith and deal with them from a a Christian perspective. And some of the talks uh, this morning's included might feel a little bit different to a usual Sunday morning simply because of what we are attempting to do. So I, I, I sort of put that out there to you now. Let's just pray and then we will look at our subject this morning. Lord, we just pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and sensitive and obedient hearts to respond to the ways that you will speak to us today, Lord. We pray. Amen. Amen. The Daily Mail ran a story on Tuesday, the 11th of December, 2007. Under the headline, We Don't Do Miracles. And the story was about a woman by the name of June Clark. And June was 56 years old and she was from Plymouth. And the subtitle for this article in the Daily Mail was Power of Prayer Helps Woman to Walk Again, Yet Officials Refuse to Stop Her Benefits. (laughs) The story is this. Mrs. Clark slipped on a wet floor at work in 2000. She ended up damaging her spine and resulted in her being in a wheelchair for the next six years. The Daily Mail article reported that Mrs. Clark attended a Christian conference in June 2006 and was physically healed. Within hours, she folded up her wheelchair and stopped taking the painkillers. After four months, having seen her doctor who confirmed that she was cured, she contacted the government industrial injury department to tell them the good news, that she no longer needed to pay benefits because God had miraculously healed her. Now, if that had been the end of the story, I doubt very much whether the BBC or the Daily Mail would have made anything of um, Mrs. Clark's case. But what attracted criticism, actually, from both the Daily Mail and, Mrs., uh, uh, and uh, the BBC was that the reaction by the government's department uh, when they said in a moment of inspired bureaucracy uh, that they were refusing to pay, uh, refusing to stop her incapacity benefits. And the reason for it, wait for this, the reason for it, and I quote, we haven't got a button to push that says miracle. (laughs) You couldn't make this stuff up, could you? Because of the permanent nature of her injury, she had been put on incapacity benefits for life, which meant that the computer computer system at the benefits office was completely unable to cope with her miraculous healing. uh, And because of that, she continued to receive payments that she wasn't entitled to. Eventually, Mrs. Clark went to see a government uh, doctor who declared that she was fully fit and that the payments were then stopped. They didn't have a button to push. 
They didn't know what to do with the information. They didn't know how to process this information or categorize what was happening. And that's for many people today who start to read the Bible, maybe for the first time. They find themselves in a similar dilemma. The Bible is a book full of miracles. Stories about Israelites crossing the Red Sea without getting their feet wet. Stories about 5,000 people enjoying a free lunch. People about, stories about a, a bloke who was swallowed by a large fish and survived to tell the tale. A guy who was dead for four days and then came back to life again. And you see, as Christians, we can't simply ignore these uh, stories because they're an integral part of the Bible. And at the heart of the Christian faith, there are miracles. We have the miracle of God becoming man in Jesus. We have the miracle of Jesus being raised again from the dead. And without these two miracles... All of the Christian faith falls flat on its face. It collapses. Take those miracles away. And all we are left with as Christians are pious platitudes. I'll come back to that shortly. I guess that many of you are aware of this man. Darren Brown. The illusionist and mentalist. Who astounds his audience with a mixture of... um, hypnotism and auto-suggestion and and plain old trickery. The latest uh, performance, and some of you might have seen his show, Miracle, which was on Channel 4 last week. And I must say, it was very uncomfortable viewing for anyone who's a charismatic Christian. Darren Brown himself uh, was a Christian until his university years. He, he, He says that he's an atheist now. He adopts in this show, the persona of a healing evangelist. And the audience is invited to be his congregation. And then through various bright lights and motivational music, he encourages people to believe that they have received some sort of healing, and then people are brought to the front. Now, let me be upfront with you on this. that If you're a person of a nervous disposition, or if you're easily offended, don't watch it. That's all I can say, because at best it's mocking, at worst it's probably blasphemous. And during this show, he mimics words of knowledge and speaking in tongues and slaying people in the spirit and casting out demons. And apart from it being an absolutely mind-blowing show of illusion, and of course him making a lot of money, he claims that his main target is not ordinary Christians like us, but the prosperity preachers on religious television that he believes are religious fraudsters and charlatans. Now, if you've seen this, his illusions are quite incredible. I have absolutely no idea whatsoever how he performs his tricks. But they are tricks. By his own confession, they are tricks. And if someone could work out how he does what he does, then my guess is that he wouldn't make much money. And probably we would. So my question is this. Does Darren Brown's miracle show disprove real miracles? And the answer to that is absolutely not. And even Darren Brown himself is willing to concede that. And my point is this, that if he is able to perform amazing illusions and convince people that they've received a miracle of healing, all that proves is, well, it proves two things. Firstly, 
that there may be some fraudsters around who use the same techniques. And the miracles that they claim are not miracles at all. That's the first thing. And the second thing that it proves is that Darren Brown is an amazing entertainer, but nothing more than that. The one thing that it does not prove is that genuine miracles are impossible. And I thought that I'd just talk about that this morning because I guess that this is so popular on television. And I guess that many of you would have watched this incredible show and be wondering, what, what's that all about? Let me mention another atheist. Richard Dawkins, professor of, professor of public understanding of science at Oxford University, author of The God Delusion. And he's normally pretty forthright in his views, certainly when it comes to God and the miraculous. And this is what he writes in one of his books. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, are all freely used for religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Now, I suppose that puts us very firmly in our place if we believe in miracles, doesn't it? You know, that we are classed here as unsophisticates. And Dawkins continues and he says, Any belief in miracles is flatly contradictory, not just to the facts of science, but also to the spirit of science. And that reasonable people have to renounce miracles. But the question I've got, is Dawkins correct in what he claims? Is it unsophisticated to believe in miracles in the 21st century? Is it credible for people today to believe in the virgin birth or in the resurrection of Jesus or Jesus turning water into wine? Do we need to throw our brains away in order to become Christians? And I would say that this really is a very, very important question to Christians because Christianity is the only major religion in the world that depends on miracles. Other religions, such as Judaism, for example, they may allow for miracles, they may report miracles. After all, their scriptures are our Old Testament. But miracles are the center of, of Christianity. St. Paul said that without Christ's resurrection, our faith is futile, everything unravels. We're wasting our time. If we take the resurrection of Christ away, then we have absolutely nothing left. All of our eggs are in one basket as Christians. According to the Quran, the prophet Muhammad, who is the founder of Islam, never claimed to perform a single miracle. Yet with Jesus, he was performing miracles all the time. He walked on water, he calmed the storm, he fed the multitudes, he healed the blind, he raised the dead. And as I say, without miracles, the Christian faith falls flatly on its face. So my question today, this big question that we're attempting to ask is, do miracles contradict a scientific worldview? Can someone be both a scientist and a Christian? Now you might have found Richard Dawkins' words very demeaning, and I think they are. But I think that they are more than demeaning for those who have a faith in, faith in God. But they're also actually untrue. You see, there is nothing unsophisticated, I believe, in being both a scientist and a Christian. 
I don't know if any of you have watched the YouTube debates between Richard Dawkins and this gentleman, <coughs> Professor John Lennox. John Lennox is a, an Oxford professor who has four master's degrees and three doctorates. A bit greedy, I think. <coughs> an absolutely brilliant man, has doctorates in mathematics and science. And there's no way that you would ever be able to class someone like John Lennox as an unsophisticated. Or maybe someone like this, Professor Alastair McGrath. Now, he has three doctorates in science and theology. When he entered Oxford University, he was an atheist, but became convinced of the evidence of Christianity. In one of his books, he writes this. Atheism, I began to realize, rested on a less than satisfactory evidential basis. The arguments that had once seemed bold, decisive, and conclusive increasingly turned out to be circular, tentative, and uncertain. Some weeks ago, for those of us who have been on the Alpha course, I think it was probably in the first week, we came across this gentleman, Dr. Francis Collins. Francis is the director of the Human Genome Project. He has a PhD in physical chemistry from Yale University, and he's also a medical doctor as well. Another unsophisticated. I don't think so. And I could provide you with many, many more names. And the only reason I put that slide up is to say, and to eradicate really the idea, that um, there is something scientifically naive in anyone believing in God or, uh, or believing in miracles for today. Some people attempt to explain miracles away in other ways by informing us that People in Bible times were ignorant or superstitious or primitive. For instance, as the argument goes, if we were to fly a modern jet over a primitive tribe today, then it is believed that they might possibly fall to the ground and worship the silver bird god in the sky. They might think that what they've witnessed is a miracle. Whereas we know that the plane overhead is simply the result of the applying of principles of aerodynamics and jet propulsion. Now, being honest about this, I would say, I'd be the first to accept actually, that people of Bible times weren't as scientifically sophisticated as people living in the 21st century. But I think that we need to give these folks some credit. Because they know just as we know that virgins don't normally give birth to babies. They weren't that unsophisticated or primitive. They knew, as we know, that it's not a normal human activity for people to walk on water. And once someone stays dead, they, once someone is dead, they stay dead. I think we should give them that credit. You see, on the one hand, those that we have historical reports from in the scriptures, the eyewitnesses of these events, they couldn't explain what had happened, but yet they couldn't ignore the evidence. And I think that we need to remember as well that many of the earliest Christians were not easily swayed by stories of, say, the resurrection of Jesus. Some of them were quite hard-nosed cynics, people like Paul, Saint Paul, 
Well, originally he was this Pharisee. He was on a, a murder track to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. He was a Pharisee, therefore he believed in miracles, he believed in the afterlife, but when he heard reports of Jesus being raised from the dead, he wouldn't accept a word of it. This was until, of course, he had that encounter on the Damascus Road with Jesus, and it changed everything. An encounter that changed his life, it turned him away from being a persecutor, of Christians and turned him into being the greatest missionary of all time. Thomas was another one. He got the nickname Doubting Thomas. One of the disciples who travelled with Jesus for three years heard Jesus teach everything that he taught, saw the miracles firsthand. And yet when some of his friends came along and said that they had witnessed Jesus who had risen from the dead, there was no way that he was going to believe that. Do you think I was born yesterday? Do you take me for an idiot? Well, his actual words were, unless I can place my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into the side where the spear went, I'll not believe. Another question, I suppose, is even if we could concede that miracles are found in the Bible, were miracles confined and limited to the pages of Scripture? Again, I don't believe so. A few years back, uh, American professor Keen, uh, C- um, Craig Keener wrote a two-volume, 1,200-page book entitled Miracles, providing over 400 well-documented, verified accounts of healing throughout the world, north, south, east, west, all kinds of miracles. And he and his research team of academics ruthlessly eliminated all except the most verifiable and well-documented miracles. I tell you what, you should have been in Alpha this week. In our groups, some of the group conversations that we had were just utterly amazing, where I heard many accounts of people giving first-hand knowledge of miracles that have happened in their lives, which are medically verifiable. We also heard a a few stories of amazing prenatal healing. In our group, there wasn't hardly a dry eye there as we listened to these stories. Let me put a simple equation up on screen for you. No miracles equals no resurrection. Therefore, if there are no miracles, then, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if there's no resurrection, there's no Christian faith. And that's what I mean by saying that we as Christians, we have all of our eggs in one basket... But if we don't believe in miracles, when we don't believe that there was ever a resurrection, then we may as well go home now, because what we're doing is utterly futile. We're wasting our time speaking about the Christian faith, because all we're doing is paying some kind of respect to someone who is long since dead. And it may be that you are here this morning and that you've not really looked into the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And I would say to you that the evidence is is very, very strong. There are five reasons, at least, that I believe that uh, why Jesus rose from the dead. Let me just go through these very, very quickly with you. Firstly, no one disputed the fact that Jesus died on a cross. You think of those who saw Jesus' last moments. Eyewitnesses observed his last breath. 
He was certified dead by the Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers' business was killing. They knew a dead person when they saw one. The soldiers decided not to break Jesus' legs, which was a customary practice to hasten death in crucifixion. And the reason that they decided not to do that, because they noticed that Jesus was dead already. Jesus' death was confirmed when a spear was put in his side and out flowed both blood and water, the separated cells and the serum coming from his pierced side, which only happens post-mortem. Over the years, I've come across people who've suggested that Jesus didn't actually die. They thought that he died, but what happened? He fainted, and later in the coolness of the tomb, he revived again. Again, I find that incredibly far-fetched and fanciful. There's no way I can understand how people can actually believe that. Because it involves us believing that a man who was beaten to within an inch of his life, impaled on a cross, then wrapped in 75 pounds of bandages and spices, rather like a plaster cast, could somehow unwrap himself... Push away a one-ton boulder single-handedly, overcome armed guards, walk miles on feet which had been pierced, and then appear to people in such a way, over 500 people, that he had actually conquered death. That he had resurrected, not simply resuscitated. Come on! You know, I think to, to believe that you need to throw your brains away. In addition to the testimony of the eyewitnesses, no secular historian at the time doubted that Jesus died. People like Josephus and Pliny and Tacitus and Lucian. The second point, the body was gone. What happened to it? Some people say that the Jews removed it, which was Mary's immediate assumption as well. That's what she thought. But again, you see, all they needed to do, once there was news going around that they wanted to stop, that this Jesus had risen from the dead, all they needed to do is to go to the cupboard where they had hidden the body or wherever they would hidden it and bring it out again. And Christianity would have ceased to be even before it got started. If the disciples had removed it, why on earth would they have subsequently been prepared to die for something that they knew hadn't happened. It's against logic. Thirdly, there were many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. To Mary, to the twelve disciples, to followers on the Emmaus Road, to James, to Paul, to five hundred others. And they all became convinced when they saw him. Fourthly, I think that we've got to explain the rapid spread of Christianity after Christ's death, it's quite significant. You see, the twelve disciples were prepared to die for a belief that Christ had risen from the dead. And I think that that is one of the strongest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the conviction that transformed them from fearful cowards into mighty, bold apostles who took the gospel, who turned the world upside down for Jesus. And fifthly, this is the, the personal experience of Christians. Generations of Christians have lived who have come to know Jesus as a person. 
with whom they enjoy a wonderful, genuine friendship. You see, Christianity is not just a, a creed to be followed or an ideology to, embrace, to be embraced, but it's a dynamic relationship with the real living God through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies, witnesses with our spirit that we are adopted, that we are his children. Let me illustrate it this way to you. Let's say that you were decided to one day to go into the office because you wanted to see your boss and you believed that the boss was in the office that day. And you drive in and you see the boss's car in the parking lot. You ask the secretary if the boss is in and she said, yes, I saw him about 10 minutes ago. You go to his door, you see light coming from his room underneath the door. You listen carefully and you listen to his muffled voice on the telephone. On the basis of the evidence, you have good grounds for concluding that your boss is in the office. Yeah? You could do something more. You could just go and knock his door and meet him face to face. You see, if you were to do that, everything else at that point, the evidence of his car being in the parking lot, the testimony of his secretary, the light under the door, the voice of his on the telephone, all of which is valid, would only then take a secondary role because you've actually met your boss face to face. And in the same way, when people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when we, as it were, to use those same words, meet him face to face, all the arguments and the evidence for his existence, which is all pretty perfectly valid, takes a secondary place. Knowing God personally and seeing him change our lives is the greatest miracle of all. I'm going to finish in a moment. But I would say to you that the real issue here this morning, because we're asking this question, are miracles feasible, are they possible in the scientific 21st century? And the issue really isn't with miracles, but rather with the existence of God. And this is the bottom line. If God exists, then there is no problem with miracles, because God, by definition, is all-powerful. That is the issue. If God exists, then we should have no difficulty whatsoever believing that God occasionally transcends natural laws. If there is a God who created the universe, why should we ever question his ability of stepping into creation and creating a Y chromosome in the womb of a virgin? It's no big deal. And if God exists... Why should we believe that he could not, if he so chooses to do so, turn water into wine and give eyesight to a man born blind? And this is the challenge. If you've already made up your mind that there's no God, then no amount of evidence will ever persuade you that a miracle has happened. If you have made up your mind, I don't believe in a God, then there's no evidence that will ever persuade you. But if you think that there might be a God, then you are more likely, I guess, to look at the evidence with an open mind. I'm going to finish today by showing you a video. So I want you to sit back, be comfortable. 
And for those who are listening to this talk on podcast, if you could click the hyperlink in the attached file. This video is of Pastor Matt Fry from the C3 Church in North Carolina, who tells the story of another pastor, a pastor by the name of Dwayne Miller, a pastor from Texas. I won't say any more, but I will just let him tell the story. I don't know if that had the same impact upon you that it had upon me. Dwayne, when he was giving that talk in that church with his raspy voice, one thing that he said was, don't put God in a box. He doesn't want to be put in a box. And maybe that's something that some of us are doing just now. And this morning... I don't want you any more than I want myself to do that, to put God in a box. I want to give God the ability in this place to do what God will do. As uh, Pastor Matt was saying there, the most important miracle of all is that we get right with him, that we get our sins dealt with, that we are forgiven. And it may be as you were listening to that this morning that As he prayed that very simple prayer, you sort of echoed that in your own heart. I I, I trust that you did, that some of you here this morning prayed that. And if that's you this morning, or maybe you didn't, we're going to sing a song or two now. And we're just going to give an opportunity for God to do what God wants to do. That we're not putting God in a box. And if you want this morning this God that we've been speaking about, the God of miracles, to come into your life, to transform you, to make the changes, to bring forgiveness of sins, to give you a brand new start, I want you to pray that prayer in your own words. Whatever is true and right and honest for you to pray, maybe that you've still got lots of doubts, other things that you are struggling with things that you don't understand, that's okay. I think God is big enough to cope with all of that. But that intention to say, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I want to go your way. Would you stand, please?